welcome to Meaty Roots Radio. This is your host, Robbie Martin. So today we will be joined by Alex Winter, a very special guest. Alex Winter entered show business as a child actor on Broadway and came to prominence in movies such as the Warner Brothers hit The Lost Boys and the Bill and Ted Excellent Adventure and sequel Bogus Journey. Winter has directed three narrative features, Hulk Classic, Freaked for 20th Century Fox, Fever for Lionsgate, and Smosh the Movie, which opened in 2015 as the number one comedy on iTunes. Winter's TV credits range from MTV's The Idiot Box to Emmy-nominated work for the Cartoon Network, as well as numerous commercials and music videos. Winter's newest direction, producing documentary films like the VH1 Rock Doc, Downloaded, and his award-winning documentary Deep Web. Deep Web was released in September of 2015 and opened as the number one documentary on iTunes. Winter is now making the definitive documentary on Frank Zappa, which has set the record as the highest-funded documentary in Kickstarter history. Hi, Alex. Hey, Robbie. Thanks for having me. I actually uh, heard you on the Opian Jim show uh, many months ago, and I was just really intrigued by your whole backstory. I mean, I knew that when I when Deep Web came out, I knew that that you had made it, and I and I knew your acting background. Until I listened to that interview, I didn't realize like how passionate you were about the issues. I mean, I guess one should maybe assume if someone's made a documentary that the person behind it would be passionate about issues, but that's not often the case. People make documentaries about things sometimes because it just tells an interesting story. But based on when I listened to you, it seemed like you had a very deep knowledge about the subject um, predating making the documentary and also you know, a passion for the issues and sort of the politics surrounding that. Is that accurate to say? Yeah, uh, for sure. I mean, I, I didn't have a, a set agenda when I set out to make um, Deep Web or even a complete expansive knowledge of, of all of the areas that it touches on because it touches on so many. Um, so there were some issues that I was interested in that I brought to the table and then there were many that I learned while working on the project um, that I remained interested in. But uh, certainly I've been, you know, I, I made the, the Napster movie downloaded before Deep Web and I've been very involved and interested in uh, the kind of rights and uh, human cultural aspects around technology since the 80s. I've been pretty involved in that world. Yeah. I mean, you even mentioned to me you were studying, um, was it Appalachian Pot Farmers? Um, who use the internet? Yeah, I, I my first, I, I was very um, involved in the what was referred to as the, I guess the Usenet or newsgroup era, which is pre-modern web, um, the late '80s into the early '90s, and uh, I was very active in the communities that existed on the internet at that time. Uh, and I was writing a script about Appalachian pot farmers, it was a movie I was going to make with Kevin Bacon many years ago, uh, and looked at. Uh, pot as a prohibition um, issue. And uh, it wasn't an issues movie. It was a drama. It was sort of almost like a modern day version of Thunder Road, the great uh, Robert Mitchum movie. But it, it was, awesome. very, <laughs> yeah, it was very, very grounded and very much based in fact. And I was, I was communing with, with quite a few large uh, scale marijuana um, sellers and, and growers uh, on encrypted internet channels. 
and I guess this would have been like 1990. Uh, so that was my introduction into that world and, and how many people were, were using the internet at that time for the community of, of you know, people who were uh, involved in either contraband or, or just in, in sort of political, uh, radical politi- political views um, and uh, activity and, and activism, which I first discovered back then. So when you were communicating over encrypted means with some of these people, what would you use back then? Was it like PGP key or was it anything more? Or was it no, it wasn't PGP uh, in those days. It was, uh, it was a more crude form of encryption. Uh, it was co- very cumbersome and very code heavy. Uh, and there were certain very unwieldy applications that we would use for sending encrypted emails. And, uh, uh, it, it just looked like a, uh, like a bad HTML page basically. Uh, but it worked. And, uh, you know, these, these, these people were doing all their business that way. Yeah. It's kind of just a commentary on how when the internet was first booming, like with AOL, a lot of these drug, you know, people who were involved in the drug scene, um, were being a lot more careful seem like about their online activities. Um, and then on the other hand, you had a rampant, basically child porn trafficking happening on AOL at the same time where it was almost completely allowed. I mean, the internet now is just flooded with so many people and so much crap. Um, but back then it seemed like there was actually a very strong community of like really savvy and educated drug users, essentially online, even I mean, I would argue even, um, I don't know if you remember the forum, I think it was alt.drugs.hard. <laughs> and it was actually like filled with basically junkies who were uh, nerds, who, who knew like exactly where all the needle exchanges were. I mean, it was, you know, on one hand, it was kind of um, disheartening to see, you know, a lot of people, addicts communicating with each other. But on the other hand, a lot of the information on the forum was really helpful. Um, and so I, I remember just being young and being really like that sort of just changed my whole way of looking at the world, you know, like it, it broke down a lot of like barriers for me. So later on, on the internet and, and sort of getting involved in this, um, did you, were you ever, um, checking out similar things around the same time where like, um, uh, they were selling lots of legal psychedelics on the internet, like in the late nineties. Look, the thing is, I mean, I was never interested in using the internet to to get drugs. Uh, I was very interested in it from the standpoint of community, which is what you were just describing. And there was absolutely a shift in the in the general culture of the internet as it expanded, which is just stands to reason. There's yeah. just a lot more people using it, so. You know, the, the, that community gets diluted and it goes and finds other ways of communicating. Um, when I first got online in the late 80s and discovered the Usenet um, through the news group community, I was, I was really taken by the, the discourse that was there. Um, it wasn't only the, the, the use of, of uh, it wasn't only the, the community of drug people, it was politics, philosophy, literature art uh there were you know a lot of the original cypherpunks were talking about 
wanting to create privacy uh, tools to knowing that surveillance was was an issue and a growing issue and would come would become a problem as these technologies became more sophisticated. Uh, there was a, a a very robust community, and as the internet. Uh, became more popular, that community was driven into other areas. And what was interesting for me about the Silk Road, which was what I made the deep web about, uh, was when I discovered the Silk Road, I had not seen that community, the, 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 the alt-rec drugs community that you just described, which I knew very well, um, even 10 years earlier than the time you're talking about. Uh, I had not really seen that community uh, en masse uh, for about 10 years, and then at least, if not longer. And mm -hmm. then the Silk Road uh, shows up, and suddenly on the Silk Road forums, you have that whole community shows up. And you're talking about thousands and thousands and thousands of people from around the world. And they're, you know, I, I have to say that I don't find anything, and I know, you know I'm sure you don't really either underneath it all, uh, just knowing your politics, but I don't find anything in the least bit sad about the ability for people who are using drugs to talk to each other and give each other support. Um, that's, I think, one of the biggest problems as a result of the drug war is the, the, the stigma of drug use prevents a lot of people from getting help and they either die or go to jail, which is not the result you want for somebody who is sick um, and seeking help. You know, death or jail is not obviously to um, I'm not well and I need help. So uh, to me, it was enormously gratifying and reassuring to discover the Silk Road and to find these forums uh, and to find doctors and um, addicts who were able to, to give each other support and help when and how they needed it. Um, and that's not, again, I mean, just we can get into this in more detail. That's not to paint the Silk Road with some kind of activist brush and say it was all good. The sort of binary binary examination of of criminality and contraband and drugs is another big problem that we face at the moment. Where you can either you have to fall hard on one side or the other, and you can't get into the grays, which of course is where all of the important truth lies. So uh, the Silk Road really was was and the and the boom of the dark net uh, was really bringing us back to a community that we had had already. And in fact, I found some of the same people there that I knew back from the late 80s. I found some of the older pot uh, growers uh, on Silk Road and some of the other dark markets that I hadn't spoken to since in probably 15 years. That's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, when when Silk Road first came onto the scene, um, and of course your movie Deep Web really you know, pushed the... I think it, I mean, it did a really good public service, I mean, not the, not the Silk Road, not that it didn't, but your movie did by basically showing that gray area and how, um, I mean, th this whole idea of community, um, it's, it's not something that you would hear about in the news stories about the Silk Road. Um, all you would hear about is people were selling hard drugs and weapons, um, you know, and kids could buy them and things like that. That was kind of the, it was just the bad. Um, but I think that that's, I mean, that's incredibly important. You know, there were websites like Irwid.org and Dancesafe.org. You know, they were basically trying to push into the forefront the idea of drug education, awareness, sharing anecdotal reports. And, and Dancesafe specifically was trying to prevent death 
and trying to prevent overdoses um, because the DEA at the time was saying in the 90s that it was MDMA that was causing all these overdoses and deaths when Dance Safe and the people who ran it were saying, no, it's actually um, MDMA is relatively safe at a at the right dosage. It's all these adulterants that are actually causing death. And uh, the DEA was trying to shut down Dance Safe um, for years and years. I think they finally laid off of them. But these are other, pa I'm just mentioning Dansafe because that's a past example of something that in a lot of ways was, it didn't really have anything about it that was profit driven or they weren't selling drugs to anybody. So you could, it's really hard to make the argument that it wasn't providing a public service. But of course the government and DEA tried to make that argument. When you, when you, so when you first, I'm assuming obviously <laughs> that you, that you went on to some of these communities and you know, used, used Tor or whatnot to get on and check them out. Walk me through a little bit exactly when you first heard of the Silk Road and, and when you decided to check it out. Like what made you curious and how you got onto it? Because I, I believe there's some, you can't just go straight onto it. You know, you need some encryption and stuff like that. So maybe describe a little bit of that. Well, you know, to, the... <clears throat> Without getting into a, a, a laborious description of the, of the deep web and darknet, the deep web essentially just accounts for all of the unindexed content online. It's basically administrative code, and it's fairly meaningless to people. Yeah. Uh, your, your bank uses the deep web to communicate with itself. Um, the darknet is a very, very, very small corner of the internet that's basically been carved out to use for privacy. And it, it, it hides itself within this unindexed area of the internet. And you can use services like Tor um, to access it. And Tor is a, a browser and a service. There is a, a service called Tor Hidden Services. And you use a Tor browser to access Tor Hidden Services. And uh, a website on Tor Hidden Services has a .onion suffix instead of .com. And it's... Uh, you know, a, a home for for various darknet services. Um, you know, there are other anonymous networks besides Tor, like I2P, but Tor is, is for the sake of conversation, the primary one. Um, and, uh, <clears throat> you know, I've, I've always been uh, very interested in privacy and anonymity online. I was interested in that in the 80s. I've, I've you know, started using PGP when that became available started using Signal and other uh, encrypted phone and email uh, text technology when it became available. Uh, and uh, so I already had Tor and knew about Tor and knew about the darknet. But I um, became interested in, in Silk Road when I started hearing about Bitcoin. Um, the Silk Road really put Bitcoin on the map. And, uh, and so I'm, I'm just, I have a very... Uh, you know, I'm very interested in in, in ev evolutionary internet communities, and you know, I'd made the the movie about Napster, uh, and I had met the Napster guys, Sean Fanning and Sean Parker, back in 2000 when they were doing Napster, and started working on a film around them then. Um, and again, this isn't about good or bad; uh, it's about the fact that uh, Napster, whether you liked it or not, was, was not really so much about, um, uh, music. It was mostly about create the, the motive was really, and the brilliance of the technology was about creating the world's first, uh, large scale, uh, internet community, which it was by an order of magnitude. There'd never been 50 to a hundred million simultaneous users traveling through one server on the internet 
communicating with each other and using one service ever in the history of ever. So that was a watershed, and, I, and I, that's how I recognized it, and that was the story that I wanted to tell. Um, the fact that they were using uh, music to gather people together, the fact that that had a contraband or uh, law-bending component is, is a big part of how you build these communities. It's very, again, it's not to condone them, but it's not an accident that these are, the, uh, are communities that involve some form of, of bending the law. Um, that's actually a part of how these technologies evolve, and that's always been the way technology evolves. In fact, I would argue that's how industry evolves, period, whether it's the automobile or or the internet. But that's a great uh, point. Yeah. So uh, when Silk Road showed up, I immediately recognized it as as the world's first large scale anonymous uh, internet community, and that that was its watershed. And and again, uh, not to condone what Ross Ulbricht did, but what you can't take away from him um, was the brilliance of combining uh, Bitcoin and Tor uh, around a community that would be anonymous with uh, to bring like-minded people together of, of this stripe, um, whether it was your political views, your um, anarchist views, your privacy and encryption views, your libertarian views, or you just want to buy drugs. Let's yeah. just say that was the only reason. There was a myriad of reasons why you would go to the Silk Road. It was not just one. It wasn't, you can't just dismiss it as a drug site, nor can you, as you just said, nor can you just outright hail it as an activist site like the other sites that you mentioned. That would be also be unfair because, of course, there was a profit involved. Um, but it's not black and white. It's not one or the other. It's all of the above. And and the significance of it and the uh, the watershed nature of it as a technology just cannot be overlooked, however unpalatable that may be. And however much people want to turn away and just say, oh, it's just drugs, it's just bad, let's just stamp it with that rubber stamp and move on. Um, that was why I wanted to make the doc. That's why I wanted to make the NAFTA doc. It was that, uh, those paradoxes, it was that conflict, it was the unpalatable nature of them um, that, that interested me. And not because I find that sensational, but because, as I said, to me, it, there's a, an inescapable uh, uh, connection between the, the contraband component and their success and the evolutionary nature of what they are. And that's precisely the story that I wanted to tell was it, it, it isn't just uh, drugs bad, Silk Road bad, or activists good and evolution and ending the drug war good. It's not that simple. It's not, it's not as simple as either of those camps. It's far more complicated and far more unpalatable uh, and far more thorny, which is um, much more human, I think. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And when you brought up uh, earlier of how a lot of innovation is based on bending the law, um, that sort of struck me because I, you know, I see a lot of these, I, I live in um, Oakland, California, so I'm not too far away from like the, you know, the heart of Silicon Valley and, and Uber and all these new companies um, that seem to have really succeeded, especially Google and Uber, largely by kind of I don't. I mean, definitely Google by bending the law. Uber more by like going around, you know, different <laughs> previous conventions and things like that. Um, and they've been incredibly successful by basically. Uh, I, I would almost describe it as getting ahead of the law, if that's a a way to, you can characterize it. Um, but that's that's uh, not entirely related to what we're talking about. But so this idea of. I, I'm a little bit, you know, I, I like to consider myself computer savvy. 
I don't have much experience with encryption, but the I, this was a part of the Silk Road that I had a hard time wrapping my head around is the idea of Bitcoin being an anonymous um, form of, of monetary transaction. Um, but so that so that's anonymous. That's you can have an anonymous Bitcoin wallet. Um, is that correct? You can you can have an anonymous Bitcoin account. You you can anonymous. I mean the 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 thing of it is. I mean, and again, I don't want to bog this down in a, te in a technological thing that'll bore everybody to tears. You can you can really Google this and find the answer very quickly. But Bitcoin is capable of being anonymized. Bitcoin by nature is actually the least anonymous form of currency that exists. Not that it's exactly a currency. It's a technological protocol, but it can be used as a currency. Uh, it's the least it's the least anonymous form of currency. It's just because every transaction is baked into the blockchain. Every every transaction is, is permanently and irrevocably recorded in a digital ledger. So um, you know, if you have transactions using Bitcoin that you have anonymized, what you're anonymizing is the username on either end. Um, and then you can tumble that Bitcoin and further anonymize it. And I know I'm using jargon that people won't understand, but just suffice to say that there, that there are ways of anonymizing. And while there have been a lot of very flippant um, dismissals of it, Bitcoin as uh, a, a useful anonymized currency, it, that's not fair either. There are ways of, of successfully anonymizing Bitcoin. Um, and it did work and has worked for many people. And I know a great many people who use it um, and remain retain their anonymity. They have to go to great lengths to do it successfully. And if you screw up, you're, you're, uh, you have a direct trail back to yourself. Um, but there is a way to anonymize Bitcoin. And just and I might sound a little ignorant asking this next question then, but at a certain point with the Silk Road, there have there have to have been so even though the Bitcoin transactions may have been anonymized and carefully hidden, the trail uh, perhaps wouldn't. I mean, there there is a connection point where you still need to send physical goods to someone in the mail. So that was always the part to me that was interesting is at a certain point, you still are shipping drugs through the mail, through customs. Yeah. So, you know, was that done any differently than the typical, you know, how that would have been done in the past? Did Silk Road have a kind of tradition, you know? No, the, the, <laughs> the, um, the success of a, of a dealer to stay in business largely, uh, from, from my research and my specific sources, uh, and I spoke to many of them, some of whom were in jail, some of whom were going to jail, some of whom have evaded jail. Um, very much relied upon their operational security, their ability to maintain a high end of, of in, in encryption security without making mistakes, their ability to maintain a high level of Bitcoin security without making mistakes, and their ability to then, as you said, step into the real world and uh, have very uh, high security in terms of how they utilize the um, the postal system, and you know the the people that did the best and survived the longest were really good at all of those. The ones who didn't screwed up in any one of those at one point. And again, I you know, and I always say this not because I'm trying to deter people from doing whatever they want on the internet, but using the internet for contraband is extremely risky uh, because the internet is is a, an information gathering tool. And so if you make mistakes on the internet, they're just there forever. They're there a year from now, five years from now, 10 years from now. So you're leaving traces, digital traces all over the place. 
in terms of the postal system, I mean, they're, you know, the, for time immemorial, people have been coming up with ways to get drugs through the postal system. And there's any number of those in terms of, you know, vacuum sealing and then bleaching the vacuum sealed bags to prevent dogs from being able to sniff them and creating, uh, you know, all kinds of decoys that you bury the drugs inside. And, and people are sending all kinds of contraband all over the place and through customs and a postal system all the time. Sometimes they get caught. Most of the time they don't. There's just an enormous amount of, of content being moved around that way. Um, but you had to be, in terms of using the dark markets, and it's not past tense because there are more dark markets today by far than there ever have been, you have to be very savvy at all, sort of all three of those, those um, columns in order to, to, to stay uh, one step in front of, of being arrested. Yeah. Well, that, so that brings me to my next question then about, in your mind, do you think that, or, or just based on your research, I know you probably didn't have a chance to cover all of this in, in your documentary, Deep Web, but do you think um, the DEA or Customs or whoever, you know, whatever law enforcement would be seizing these packages or seeing them, do you think that they were seeing a lot of drugs being trafficked on Silk, Silk Road and then they felt like they had to respond? I'm almost playing devil's advocate by asking this. I don't, that seems unlikely to me, but I'm posing the question to you of why they targeted him. Um, was it because they thought that it was, you know, a heart, a threat to public safety or were they more trying to make an example out of this guy who had created what's arguably a brilliant system of, of trading contraband online? I would say both to be fair. I mean, I think that, that it's, it's, and I'm, I'm an, a, a, very adamant um, uh, opposer of the drug war. I think it's a disaster. I think that it was politically cynical from the day it was it was created in the Nixon administration. I think Ehrlichman has since come out and admitted that it was created primarily to to felonize the enemies of the government, like the hippies and blacks back in their day, and yeah. essentially anybody whistleblowers and anyone else today that that you know our prisons are overstuffed with mostly minority nonviolent drug offenders, and that is an, a, a crime unto itself. So I am, I am rabidly anti-drug war, but I'm not um, so cynical as to assume that nobody in the DEA believes in public safety. I think that would be absurd to say. And there are very, there are great people in any area of law enforcement doing very important work that's much needed in an attempt to try to help people and sometimes to the best of their ability, given laws that they may not even agree with. Um, but it is their duty to serve the law. And so I would say both. I would say that, that once the Silk Road was discovered um, and its size was discovered, uh, I think that, that the idea that the internet, which terrifies most people anyway, especially in the government and law enforcement and um, and people from an, a, a previous generation um, to, you know, millennials and people who grew up with this, these technologies. The Internet is a scary idea. The idea of loss of control, the idea of the democratization of culture is terrifying to uh, power systems. And the notion that one kid on his laptop was able to implement a, a, and launch, successfully launch what was obviously going to be the beginning of a movement. It was not going to be, we just shut this down and we're done. It's similar to Napster. It was the, be the beginning of a new game of whack-a-mole um, that combined a, a cryptocurrency that, that 
the government was already wary of and felt felt threatened by. Uh, so Bitcoin is a problem. Drugs are a problem. The internet is a problem. Encryption uh, systems are a problem. And a democratized online community of radical thinkers is a problem. And you've got all of that, and, so, and Ross Ulbricht suddenly becomes a significant threat. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's, you raise a, a really good point about this idea of whack-a-mole and comparing it to Napster, because um, as you said, there are so many of these Silk Road style networks online now. I'm not savvy enough or dedicated enough to actually look at them myself. I kind of tried to one day. I, I spent a few hours looking at them and, and uh, I actually got stuck at the part where you're supposed to make a Bitcoin wallet. I couldn't even figure out how to do that. So I have a lot of uh, learning to do <laughs> in regards to um, anonymizing in Bitcoin. But uh, so there, I mean, this is a, a trend that will um, just sort of spread on its own. And, you know, sending things to the mail contraband will always be legal. But this new way of trading contraband on the Internet, it seems like it's here to stay. Um, and unfortunately, the DEA are, you know, are passing more and more laws um, that will basically cre continue to create reasons for places like the Silk Road and other um, deep web uh, marketplaces to exist. Um, recently, they announced that they are scheduling, emergency scheduling, um, a previously legal herbal drug called Kratom, and arguably Kratom is far safer than other opioid-like drugs, um, oxycontin, morphine, hydrocodone. Um, but yet the DEA in their press release says that because of 15 Kratom-related deaths, they claim, which they can't even prove, um, if you follow up on their sources, there are very few, um, that they're making it illegal. Now, is this the DEA? Do you? Th I mean, I'm asking to speculate, obviously, here, but... Is, would you see this as something where the DEA is actually like, look, we need to, you know, this is for public safety, or could this be more of a political thing? Um, because, of course, pharmaceutical opiates are I mean, still I'll, widely used. Yeah, I, that's a great question. And I do have an opinion about it. And, and I would, as you said, I would caveat that with, with this is my opinion. This is, um, you know, the... The times are changing, and the DEA are in an existential crisis. If the drug war ends, the DEA's reasons for existence is over. The drug war is ending. It's going to end slowly, but it's going to end. And prohibition doesn't work, didn't work with alcohol, and it hasn't worked with drugs. And we are going to be moving as a culture, a world culture, and a society, and a national society, towards an era where drugs are legal and regulated. And it's not going to happen easily. It's not going to happen overnight. It's not going to happen with, without mistakes, but it's going to happen. And Kratom to me, and this, this almost comical, farcical um, retaliation against this, this drug that's been used for thousands of years without any form of, of mass casualty or, or danger to public uh, health, is like the equivalent of, of Kim Davis in Kentucky refusing to to obey the gay marriage laws. It's a it's a reaction. It's a last gasp reaction 
to the the, the the way in which the laws are changing, the way in which marijuana has has become legalized now um, in so many states, and the 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 kind of evolutionary shift that's occurring, um, it's it's farcical, and it in a way it could be looked at somewhat optimistically in the sense that if this is where the the money and energy is being spent. Um, it tells us, I think, on a broader level, what a miserable failure the drug war is. And, and, you know, to the point that you raised earlier about public, public safety, you know, the area that I do take issue with is, is when, and as you mentioned it earlier, that it's, it's, the, the, it's always the children, the children, the children are going to be victimized. And of course, it's statistically, you know, the amount of children that have died as a result of the drug war uh, on the, on the streets of our cities and, in Mexico and dealing with the, the borders and the drug trade across the borders, I mean, is, is on a percentage basis, is just completely incomparable to somebody who may be getting MDMA off the dark net um, and, and having, you know, uh, some, something happen to them as a result of, of that. Uh, statistics would, would, be, would be staggering in terms of how small that is. It would be next next to none, I would argue, um, as opposed to, you know, in the millions on the other side. So, you know, I think we're seeing the, I think we're seeing an existential threat, um, and, the, and a response to an existential threat. And I think that, I think Kratom is actually really useful because I think that when, when the hand gets shown that clearly, when something so ludicrously, uh, not dangerous is being treated in this regard. And, and I have been following the story and they're not allowing a public, uh, debate, it's just going to be done, and that's that. It, it, it's a retaliation, and it's a reaction. And I think to me, it just it just speaks of the end. It doesn't speak of the beginning. I think that I don't think that I think the the, the corner has been turned, um, and I don't think there's really any going back from the from the end of the drug war and and the uh, the ultimate legalization of of all drugs. I would argue. Yeah, I mean, I hope I hope that's the case. Um, I would agree with you that it definitely is a desperate. A move on their part to to like emergency schedule things especially a drug like kratom and it's also just such a shame that we have a huge heroin um an opioid addiction problem in the united states and this was for many years and many addicts um it was a an alternative to methadone treatment um it was an alternative to being addicted to opiates um and and in addition to that, I mean, we actually have a really successful form of um, addiction treatment that's known as ibogaine um, treatment, and it's illegal here. And people, you know, if you have enough money, uh, you can travel to another country where it's legal and, and get that treatment. Um, and it's been shown in studies to be very successful in getting people to kick um, heroin, cocaine, um, and other drug addictions. So... I guess it, it's infuriating to me that we're literally putting people's lives in danger by making something like Kratom illegal. I mean... Well, there's no doubt. But, but once you go down the opioid uh, avenue, then you get into the big pharma of it all. And you can start to look at what drugs are allowed and what drugs aren't. If you're looking at, at Ibogaine and you're looking at Kratom... Uh, in in contrast to methadone or oxy, for instance, 
you know, there's an enormous amount of money to be made in, in the sale of Oxy. And the, the Oxy addiction rates have, in the last five years, have gone through the roof. Yeah. Um, as have the heroin uh, addiction rates. They've gone through the roof. And, and as a nation, we are, um, you know, to almost epidemic proportions, we have an opium, o- opioid problem. Uh, and the drug war is not, you know, the one thing I will say that the, the, the general uh, philosophical motive for the drug war, while that there are good actors within the DEA and other areas, the, the overarching motive is, has never been public safety. Um, people, the, the amount of death that has occurred as a result of the drug war is, is vast. Um, and I agree with you, that's infuriating that as we move away from the drug war and into a more compassionate and, and productive uh, way in which we regulate and deal with drugs and people who have drug problems, a lot of people are going to die unnecessarily. And it's tragic, but I think it's absolutely unavoidable. Um, and that was, you know, for me, uh, going from downloaded to deep web, I, I found it tragic even looking at, at downloaded, um, which really spoke to me about the, the ignorance around technology and the fear around technology um, and how people were being demonized because of evolutions in technology. And, you know, it was one thing when that was just about MP3s, which, you know, were being branded as piracy. Then Steve Jobs, you know, very cleverly figured out a way to monetize it and have had very much the last laugh as far as that went. And here we are today doing nothing but listening to MP3s. But, you know, drugs is a whole different thing. And, and the amount of death and the, the seriousness of that is not lost on me at all. And, you know, Deep Web was a really, really traumatic project to work on. It was really depressing. And I have a lot of, I made a lot of friends in that community and some of whom I was, who are addicts and I was quite worried about, but it's a, it's a serious issue. And to see the way the media deals with it, both the dark net and drugs and the drug war in general, it, that is infuriating because it is always painted with this good or bad brush. It's, 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 uh, you know, the inability to look at the nuance of what's actually happening right now, all that says to me is, you know, with Napster, I was, and you're, you know, sort of, you talked about being in music and around into technology in the 90s. I was completely appalled that by the time I got around to making the Napster movie, which was 14 years after Napster died, we had come no closer to having really good understanding of, of media distribution and downloading. It was just a big giant mess and the intractability of the previous organizations to embrace the way the world was going. And now I look at the same thing on a, on a much darker and, and more impactful level with the drug war and with the darknet markets. And I think we have a very long way to go until we get where we need to go. But, um, uh, the reality of it is, is, is these dark net markets are not going anywhere and they will slowly legitimize and we will, they will slowly become online services that are much needed and they will start to become regulated and they will become the norm. And I don't think it's going to happen overnight, but I absolutely do think it's going to happen. I just find it sad that there will be a lot of lost lives between now and when it becomes more acceptable. Yeah. I mean, I'm even thinking back to when eBay first started um, it was very controversial, the things that they allowed people to to sell. Um, and, and over time, of course, they cracked down on certain things. I mean, there was a um, there was a long time where you could buy uh, soiled uh, like underwear on eBay and things like that. And it was all like they had um, they even had a large um, poppy 
market where you could just buy, you know, dried poppies uh, for a long time. So there's all these, I mean, you know, these things like the uh, Silk Road have existed in other iterations, other forms similar to them, but nothing quite like um, like it. And yeah, I hope um, I hope in the future we see an evolution of it into something that's actually, you know, accepted by society or, or however you want to characterize it. Um, There's no doubt. There's no doubt that drug services will move online. I mean, they're moving online as we speak. There's no doubt that that in the future they will exist on online. There's there's no way to stop it, and it will have to become accepted and regulated at a certain point. There's it's just a question of how long that's going to take. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I mean, it's a kind of a you you also raised the issue of uh of the, the whole 3D printed gun controversy in your movie. And I thought that was a great thing to throw in there because w the theme of what a lot of what you've been saying during this interview is similar to that. It's like, at a certain point, how will we stop people from being able to 3D print a weapon? I mean, you could demonize 3D printers, you know, like actually the media kind of tried to do for a while. Um, but at, at a certain point, it's like, how can you stop this technology? You, you can't. And, and it's... You know, and, it, and the benefits of it are enormous. So to like, you know, be freaked out over it because of this potential that you can print a gun, um, I think is just, you know, it's not seeing the big picture um, of, of just how powerful and, and useful for society the, the whole thing could be. But then, you know, it, everything has negatives to it. Um, but at, at a certain point, it's, I mean, we're, it's like putting the power into the hands of, regular people i mean and, and uh, you know if you're taking away the negative aspects of some of these things that's ultimately what it's doing it's giving you people more agency um and i think that that largely is what the internet should be doing um you know for society is giving people more freedom and and you know and and things to explore um, and whether that means exploring their consciousness or, or you know, exploring Etsy and, <laughs> you know, getting uh, cool, you know, homemade objects and stuff like that. So, um, And communicating and the ability absolutely. to communicate with one another. I think that that, you know, that that can't be overlooked, that, that the idea of being able to cut through the, the, the politicizing of uh, the technological revolution, the politicizing of drugs and be able to communicate openly and honestly with one another, I just think is, is that's a, probably the most threatening thing, uh, more than anything else to, uh, you know, preexisting power structures. And B, I think that's one of the most beneficial things about, about the way, um, uh, we're evolving and the way that human society and community is evolving. I think that, that walls are going to come down more, which is why people are talking more about walls. I think that, you know, the people are going to be using anonymous uh, communities online more, which is why those communities and services like Tor are being demonized. I think that there's a, a great deal of, of fear around uh, the direction which humanity is going in. And to be fair, this is a huge seismic shift in, in human culture. I mean, the technological revolution is ushering in changes very, very quickly. Um, at a far uh, faster rate than he, most human beings have ever seen in, in, in the history of humanity. So I get it. I get that that change is hard and scary. 
Um, but you know, the, the inverse to that is not just a rubber stamp at all is bad and to try to jam the toothpaste back in the tube because obviously that's not going to work and it's also extremely damaging. And as we were saying, you know, it's one thing to do that to kids creating, you know, Napster. It's another thing when you're dealing with drugs and something that is a massive uh, problem in this country and uh, where people need help. And the current system that we have, I think, it gives them the opposite of help. Yeah, yeah definitely. Um, I wanted to move on to Tor next, but for, I, I wanted to ask you, I mean, one of the main controversies surrounding um, the Silk Road case was, you know, the media kind of went out as soon as it was announced that they had found Ross and that he was arrested. Um, it wasn't just that he was the man behind this, you know, drug marketplace is that he was also some kind of, you know, they were trying to basically represent him like he was like a mafia drug lord kind of a guy also, and that he had ordered hits, murders on other people that he worked with or colleagues that had screwed him in, in financial ways, if I'm understanding correctly, that backstory. Now, that's, I mean, it's it seemed to me at the time that it was a smear campaign, um, and you, you definitely in your movie, at least that's what I took away from it as well. But what is your, I, I just wanted to hear from you what your thoughts were on that. And I know you can't go into too much detail about it. Um, but, but yeah, what, what are your thoughts? Well, first of all, I mean, neither my film nor my opinion was based on, on the need for Ross to be some kind of activist hero that was unassailable. Um, you know, the, my whole point is that these issues are not black and white and, uh, it's the it's the the muddiness of them that is a more honest and and b more more representative of of why these these uh, watershed or radical systems um, exist and and why they become popular. So there was only so much I ever knew about Ross. I, I wasn't able to meet him. Um, the, the evidence that was out there was really murky. First, he was charged with, uh, attempted murder, these murder for hire hits, uh, none of which had been enacted. And then suddenly those, those charges were dropped. Um, and he was never charged with attempted murder. That was never, it was used in his trial against him, uh, significantly, but he was not formally charged with, with that. He was charged with drug and computer hacking charges. Um, so again, I would not. I would caution against uh, looking at Ross uh, simply. You can look at why the, the prosecution and the state um, of New York, you know, the Attorney General and everybody else, were were looking to to smear him because they were very threatened by the Silk Road. They did not want, on any level, for the political nature of it to override what they viewed as the criminal nature of it. And my point was, you can't do that. You don't get to do that. You don't get to say that. It's just criminal and it's just bad and there's no political nature to it because that's not true. And whether you like that or not, whether Ross tried to have people killed or not, it doesn't change the fact that the Silk Road was political. It doesn't change the fact that it was an attempt to circumvent the drug war and to, uh, to create um, uh, a, a very robust community for people to use um, and that it was successful in doing that. That doesn't mean that the person behind it, whether he's guilty or not of doing horrible things, 
we may never know. He was never formally charged with those crimes, so he is currently not uh, guilty of attempted murder. He's guilty. They charged him with uh, drug kingpin charges, which, again, it's was incumbent upon the prosecution to paint him as a drug kingpin because they wanted to throw the full weight of those types of charges at him to create a deterrence for other people creating darknet markets. So there was a lot of motive on the side of the prosecution to paint him as badly as they possibly could. But again, I want to stipulate, we don't know, I don't know for certain uh, what did or didn't happen uh, behind Ross's keyboard because he was never formally charged with, with those, uh, those, he was never indicted for those charges. Those charges, those indictments, charges were dropped. Which is awfully convenient for law enforcement because, I mean, like you said, if he did or if he didn't, what it's, what's important is they definitely wanted to, that was the, that was the lead that they wanted to come out with. They, they wanted that to be the headline, is that this man is a monster. Let's not look at any of the political implications of what he was doing. Um, yeah, that was, it was, I mean, that to me is, is the problem with the drug war from the beginning is that from the very, from the toxic cancerous nature of how it was created during the next administration with a purely political intent to uh, dismantle what they viewed as enemy factions, that drugs have always been political in this country. The drug war has always been political in this country. And the, the, the notion that, that, People are rising up against what they view as uh, a a destructive and failed uh, system is terrifying uh, to law enforcement and to you know to people in government. And that is not to say that everybody that comes along that that fights against that system, however successfully, is an unblemished, unassailable hero. it's like life is just not that simple and i think that that is one of the things that's maddening to me about the gullibility of the public uh sometimes to swallow these these kind of propagandized uh perspectives that come from i mean i get i mean to be honest with you i don't fault the prosecution because that's their job right it's the prosecution's job to win and to make this guy look as bad as possible so they can win the fault really goes everywhere else. The, I think the media is largely to blame. I think other, other people who were involved in that case um, who allowed some of this nonsense to be, become so pervasive are to blame. But the reality of it is, is that we, we are a gullible public. And, and it's, you know, I, I think you can look at Assange the same way. Just, it was very easy for people to dismiss Assange because of the, of the sex allegations that, that came out of Sweden. Um, and that was just used as a brush to dismiss all of the other work that he did. Whereas I would maintain that in a a society as complex as this, you're not, you know, the people who come along who challenge the the aspects of that society that aren't working or are not either ethical or or uh, productive to the populace. A lot of those people aren't going to be um, unassailable uh, people. They're going to be complicated people, and we have to have the we have to be adult um, enough to handle the nuance of examining what's going on without sort of falling hard on one side or the other. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, I, I wanted to ask you, uh, I, I know we don't have very much time left, um, but just really quickly, Alex. Do, I'm okay. I'm fine. I, we can go longer. It's okay. Right. Okay, yeah, great. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I'm not like on a hard out at, at one or anything. Okay, awesome. Because yeah. I, I didn't realize how long we were going to be on this topic. But no, it's fascinating. I'm, I'm really... Um, 
I'm going to edit this part out, by the way. Yeah, um, no, I think. Yeah. Uh, but you okay? Now I I found it interesting that you said you got you, part of parts of making deep web were very depressing for you. Um, I find that interesting because my only real foray into documentary filmmaking was extremely depressing for me, and I in a way it was kind of cathartic to hear you say that because other filmmakers I've talked to or other journalists. Um, I don't know if they've gone through, I mean, I'm sure on some level they have, but I haven't heard very many people admit to that, but going through that process, but how could you not be, you know, when looking at, at some of the stuff, um, you looked at in your movie and really laying all this out, cause you did such a beautiful job of laying out all the different facets of it. Oh, and then what was also, I thought was really effective about a deep web is you're not really a part of the movie. I mean, is that accurate to say? I mean, you, your, your face, you're not in the movie, um, and and you're not narrating it, right? That's correct. I mean, I wrote all the narration. I wrote the movie. Yeah, but, but I, uh, I'm not physically in the movie anywhere. No, I wasn't in downloaded either. And and okay, so I haven't seen downloaded, but as far as what made you decide to, cause there's a lot of approaches you can take when making a documentary, you know, you can make go the Michael Moore route if it's a political movie and, or, or, you know, the yes men, there's a lot of documentaries which were, are kind of about the filmmaker, like dirty wars, for example, is kind of almost about Jeremy Scahill, you know, doing like um detective work kind of, but I'm just curious what made you want to take this kind of approach um, with the film? Because, you know, a, I'm not a personality-driven doc filmmaker, um, and it's just, it's just not what I do. I, I am an, an observational filmmaker. I like looking at different sides of a story and uh, examining the, 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 the non-binary truth at the center of those different sides. And what I find for myself is as soon as, as, I, as you introduce a personality um, into a doc, that that person becomes the, the perspective for the audience. You become the eye of God. And that, I think, removes the ability to, um, to look at these, at these various component parts and how they fit together as a whole. I'm, that's what I'm interested in. That, to me, is where you find truth. You find truth in these paradoxical component parts that may not seem to fit together or worse, they seem to really repel one another. Um, but by really examining all of those parts in, in specific to one story, um, you can get at uh, an aspect of the truth. And I, I think that's you know not necessarily how we're wired due to the, the way most movies uh, are often get told or the way most docs often get told. So I think that sometimes you find in a doc that um, even though you um, have sort of presented various component parts, people will just fall really hard on, on one side or the other, which is fine. That's, that's really up to them. Um, but what I'm most interested in is, is, is a conundrum uh, and something that is not easily answered. And to me, downloaded the Napster story did not have an easy answer. Um, and the Deep Web story does not have an easy answer. It's, it's not to say Ross is good or bad or he did this or he didn't do that or drugs online are good or drugs online are bad. It's really looking at all these aspects and all of the, the component parts um, of that story and 
uh, and getting to a truth, you know, from the way those component parts unite with each other and conflict with each other. So I, I purposely stay out of these things. Uh, I mean, and sometimes my opinion would change from, from one day to another. And that's exactly what I want to avoid is, is sort of layering the story, is having to decide on a viewpoint and then just building the story based on that viewpoint, because that viewpoint will hopefully change. No, I really respect that approach because, I mean, I am an extremely political person. Um, I, you know, arguably radical political views, but I find when I watch most political documentaries, um, it, they're sometimes, I mean, oftentimes very heavy handed and, and it does seem like the narrative is based on a point of view rather than what it seems like you've done, which is more of like an investigative, more of a kind of an investigative approach where you're just laying out all these different pieces. Um, and I mean, I, I, that's my, that I prefer to watch documentaries like that. Um, because I think they're more timeless and they, they have a stronger impact. Um, because I think most people don't, I don't know, I, I think there's a lot of people too out there, and this is not to say that this is a reason not to do this kind of documentary, but there's a lot of people who they immediately reject, you know, their their psyche rejects being lectured to about an issue or, you know, for example, Gasland. Um, there's a lot of people who just do, probably just don't want to see Gasland because they don't want to worry about fracking, you know. Because right. um, they know what the message is, where if I'm not saying there's anything wrong with Gasland, but like if someone made like a, you know, a really dry documentary about fracking, you know, that might be go, you know, cross through that barrier easier in some people. Um, and I'm not yeah, saying I'm not saying what you've done is is dry. But what I if there's a positive way to, you know, flip flip that, it's it's kind of like it's very analytical um, and it's very uh, fact driven. And then I also really liked how you used a lot of like raw news footage and just a lot of footage um, because that's, I mean, just if I'm looking back at all my favorite documentaries, many of them, you know, have a lot of uh, footage in it. Um, like some Errol Morris documentaries and even um, yeah. Adam Curtis, uh, some of his, his stuff, which is great. Um, but so you've you have you've done not just documentaries, but you've made a lot of other kinds of films as well. But if we're just talking about your documentary films, what what are some other documentaries that inspired you just in your life, or or recent ones um, that inspired you? And then an additional question: Was there any documentary where you were thinking about as you were making um, Deep Web or downloaded, like that you you know maybe not copied from but we're, we're thinking of this was like a, a model that you know that inspired me to make these um it's hard to say because you draw from so many different places uh you know it's there and this is sort of the golden age of docs so there are so many great docs at the moment um uh, i would say that you know i love i you know i'm older so i grew up with with uh Penna baker and the Maisels and and uh, documentaries like that that were that were very um, Robert Frank, another filmmaker that I love, Frederick Weisman, uh, another filmmaker that I love, that that had I think you put it you just said it is sort of what I go for is thematically is is a timelessness due to 
coming at something with with observation. And you don't, of course, you have a bent. Of course, you have a perspective. And that is going to, it's not something that you're trying to, to ram down people's throats, but it's going to shine through. So I like filmmakers that do that. I, lo- I love uh, Give Me Shelter. I love Don't Look Back. Um, those are music docs on the surface, but they're really not. They're really about a, a culture and a time and place. Um, and those have always been very much at the forefront of my mind um, when I'm working is is because I'm usually focused on a moment in time and a moment in culture. That's what I've done. My two docs are really about culture. Um, the you know the Napster culture and the and the Darknet culture and they were very much about examining the people within that culture. That was really what I set out to do, uh, whether that was palatable or not. That's that's a group that I did think was worthy of examination. So those types of observations, Frederick Weissman's really pretty unparalleled with it. But I would say that the that you know the darkness that they were able to get at with Gimme Shelter, the 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 ability to to look at the 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 tragic denouement of the of the 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 you know the free love movement uh, and the summer of love and how all horribly wrong it all went um you know that's not about the rolling stones you know <laughs> it's about it's about something altogether outside the rolling stones and uh so i mean those those are big for me uh you know the movies of costa gavras uh like state of siege and and z uh have always been big inspirations for me um, you know, using film to 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 look at moments and and culture. Um, present day, I I love uh, a filmmaker named Marshall Curry, who made uh, a movie called Point and Shoot, which is fantastic. He's made a lot of great movies, um, but that was a recent film of his that I think is extraordinary. Um, and uh, and I also love the Scahill uh, doc, uh, Dirty Wars is great. I love Scahill's great, but. Um, but Curry is really very, very good at at uh, examining things with an observational eye, and and but with a real understanding of of culture and uh, and the the sort of nuance of of the culture that he's looking at. I just think that you know we're living in an extraordinary moment in time, so it's I feel very very grateful to be able to to get any story out that examines an interesting cultural aspect of of the times we're living in. Yeah, I mean, you really, and I, and I wanted to go into some of your other films as well, but I was amazed to see that you had finished a deep web or the deep web movie, or it was released not too long before Smosh. Now, how did you do that? How did you? <laughs> well, Smosh was Smosh was was which is not a documentary. It's no, no, no. A, it's like it's a very silly kind of lighthearted goof that we did. Um, that was mo- almost more like an extended pilot. I mean, Smosh was very small, and uh, and we got in, did it, and got out pretty quickly. Um, for me, I, I just needed a palate cleanser. Deep Web took a while, and we were doing a lot of research, and there was a trial, and there was a sentencing, and all of that. And I was able to to to, uh, and they kind of overlapped. I can't remember exactly how it worked, but I was able to get in and do one, um, and uh, and get out while sort of while I was I was dealing with the Deep Web stuff. But I. I just needed some levity. Uh, it was very grim day in, day out on, on Deep Web, and, uh, uh, and it got more grim as it went along. <laughs> so uh, I just needed, I needed something to, to make me laugh, and, and they asked me to do that for them, and I, and I uh, said yes. But it was, uh, you know, it was more something that I did as, a, as kind of a palate cleanser, and it was definitely not my, 
my my primary focus uh, for for those years was was the deep web. But there was a period when I was able to just uh, put my attention on doing Smosh for a beat. Now, in terms of just since you made those so close together, um, which like w- which one took up more? of your life, I guess. It almost sounds like deep web. Did. Oh, deep web for sure. I mean, yeah. Smosh, I, mean I, I direct a lot of TV commercials and, and TV and things like that. And, and Smosh was more like that type of project. It was, it was, you know, something that I was really happy to do. And they're, those guys are amazing. Um, and very, very talented. And, uh, Eric Falconer who wrote the script I'd worked, he, he created a show called blue mountain state that I had directed on. And he's a very talented writer. So, I mean, I was kind of brought onto that. Um, you know, the script was already done and the Smosh guys were on. And mm-hmm. so I sort of came in and, and executed that with everybody. But Deep Web is, is my film and my story and, and was very much a longstanding um, project for me. So you, you often hear this metaphor in the filmmaking industry um, of the idea of a moving train. You know, once a movie gets into production or it's greenlit, it's like a train has left the station and, and there's really not much you can do you know, to get off of that track and you, you kind of just have to go along with it. But when you, so when you're doing something like deep web, um, is that more something that's fluid even in, 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 into the editing process where it's still changing and dynamic, whereas something like Smosh, I'm assuming you had a screenplay, you shot it, and then, you know, maybe it didn't change too much in the editing process. Like, is that, it, or did you go, or when you made Deep Web, was it pretty locked in, in the script process? Like, did you already know? No, more? no. The, a doc is fluid. I mean, you may have a three-act structure in your head that, that some, some version of it lives throughout, and uh-huh. I, tend, I tend to have that. Uh, it grounds me, and I'm pl- also just a classical storyteller, because I come from narrative. Um, so I tend to write three-act structures as I'm going, even if they are are, uh, molding and taking detours. But, uh, but no, I mean the, 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 the train had, it was kind of a little of both. The train does leave the station. You know, I made the film for a network. We had, um, a set budget. We had something approximating a deadline. It wasn't hard, but we had something like a deadline. And, um, so we were very much engaged in, in getting it done, but the, but we were following the narrative and the narrative was twisting and turning uh, as it went, it wasn't radical twists and turns. It wasn't complete one eighties. It wasn't a kind of gotcha journalism movie anyway. So I wasn't looking for some big aha reveal. Uh-huh. Um, I'm, you know, the movie is about larger cultural issues. It isn't really, isn't, it's not a crime story. Um, and, uh, I wasn't, uh, folk, not like I wasn't focused on it, but that wasn't the story I was looking to tell anyway. So, um, but it was a full full commitment. I mean, it was every single day, all day we were in it and following the news and tracking our sources and modifying the narrative as we went. And certainly we did very, very different versions of the movie until we landed on the one that we felt told the story uh, with the most truth. Yeah. Well, that's really cool. I, I like, um, I like hearing about that process that went into that, especially compared to a, like a live action film um yeah it's it's very different in many many ways from from live action many ways um the only the only thing i would say on tour uh which just connects to the drug war stuff is is you know the the hysteria 
you should always beware of hysteria. That's that's like my as a doc filmmaker, like I'm always drawn towards stories where there's hysteria around something. I'm thinking, okay, why is there hysteria? Because hysteria means that all rationale is gone. Because um, we don't get to hysteria before losing reason. Um, and often in my docs, I'm trying to wind back from the hysteria to the reason again. And you know, there's a lot of hysteria around the dark net, not just because of the drugs, but because of Tor and. Tor has been demonized, and there's been a lot of hysteria, both, oh, it's only being used for criminals on the one hand, or, oh, because it was created originally within the government, um, that it's just, you know, a government honeypot, and you're a fool if you use it. And, and sometimes the same person is making both of those arguments, which is even more irrational. Um, but it, it, it's, it's hysteria. And... You know, the tour is, is really a, it's a tool and is used by lots of different people. And there are good people who use it. There are bad people who use it. There are government agents who use it. There are whistleblowers who use it for protection. And it absolutely gives them that protection. Uh, there are people who have, who have done things to it to try to break it uh, with varying degrees of success. And tour still stands and there are other services and all of that. So, you know, if you hear... It's like anything. It's like drugs. If you hear an, uh, a blanket anti-tour statement, it's usually coming from some form of hysteria, and you just have to wind your way through it to the reason underneath it, which is there's usually a reason why that agency has prejudice against it. And I'm always interested in what the motive is if somebody is, is yelling and screaming about privacy tools, which are extremely important and life-saving and used by lots of people. And tour is just one of those. Yeah, I mean, if I'm going to be completely honest, I was um, I was really confused, uh, and I still, I mean, I'm still I'm a bit confused, but I feel like I have a better understanding of the nuances of Tor. Um, but at first, I was, you know, I was like, oh, well, this this was funded by the government. You know, how could this possibly be um, useful for anti-government people? Um, and it wasn't until I understood the technology better that I realized that that was you know, a hyperbolic argument, I would say. Exactly. That's exactly what it is. It's a, a tour is a network. So the notion that because the government's fingers were in it means that the government has some Wizard of Oz-like ability to, to open the tour door and view it all is, is just begs a complete misunderstanding of how the technology works. Yeah. Um, so I was surprised uh, that you were behind the movie Freaked. <laughs> um, because I, I, when I had previously seen it, I just knew that you starred in it. I had no idea um, that you, that it was your first full-length film. What, is, that, is that correct? It was your first feature-length it, movie? It was. It was, it was a, um, I had spent many years in a partnership with a director and writer named Tom Stern, and we made a lot of comedy shorts and music videos. We had our own... TV show on MTV called The Idiot Box that I starred in, but Tom and I directed it and we co-wrote it with some other writers. And Freaked was basically The Idiot Box movie. Uh, it was the same team. It was Tim Burns and Tom Stern and myself wrote it and Tom and I directed it and I acted in it. But uh, it was uh, kind of the culmination of, of years of work that Tom and I had been doing. And it was, we actually, that was the last thing that we did together. We moved on to doing separate work after that. But um, it's uh, it was a gas. It was a, a, a nutso, crazy thing you could only do when you're young uh, to have you know seven hours of makeup a day and be directing, 
Uh, uh, <laughs> I didn't even I think just, of that. Oh, oh my God. But uh, I'm glad I did it. I would never do it again. And I'm happy. It's one of those happy accidents that, that we got made. So, well, when the, I mean, I hate to, to gush so much about Freaked. I mean, I, I know it's your first, you know, some directors or filmmakers don't like talking about their very first movie, but I mean, it's it's an extremely impressive movie, you know. Even if we're just talking about a movie, it, it, not even someone's first effort in making a film or like a feature length. I mean, there's so many practical effects in the movie. Um, I I I'm just thinking back now in my mind of all the different weird characters and concepts. And um, where did you have like some experience in doing like practical effects work yourself? before this or yeah tom and i'd been doing we had we had been doing work you know doing music videos and shorts and things like that and we were both very tech savvy um and we were huge fans of of visual effects i had acted in a lot of movies by then um that were very very effects heavy and so i i had formed relationships with some really heavy hitter creature effects shops computers as early days of computer effects, but with computer effects people. Um, so uh, we were able to utilize some of those relationships and build on those. And, uh, you know, we, it, was, it was a combination of our, of our interest, our, our fanboydom, and my contacts through the acting work. I'd done Lost Boys and, and the Bill and Ted movies by then, which had really, you know, some of the best effects people in practical and visual effects going at the time. And, uh, we brought some of those people onto Freaked, and then met other people through them, and and it was a community that we were we were connected to. Yeah, I mean, it's the movie just has so many references, uh, references and touchstones to other movies. Um, you know, from it reminds me of a lot of movies like from the the eighties, almost like um, I'm sure you've seen Nightbreed. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. It kind of yeah. it kind of has like a it just yeah. it it's it has elements from Beetlejuice, Nightbreed. I mean, Evil Evil Dead. You mentioned in, as one of your inspirations. It's 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 a totally bizarre, unique movie that um, I recommend everybody check out who likes weird cult <laughs> cult movies. And it's Thanks. and it's not just like a and and I guess one of the reasons I'm so struck by it is because it's not just like a B B horror movie or a horror comedy. It's like it has incredibly elaborate special effects work it does for, yeah which um which when i found out that you made it i was like wow that like i it, for some reason that end stop motion animation sequence and freaked is like burned into my memory as one of the most it was one of the last stop motion animation sequences i can remember in a in a, a mainstream movie or in the I don't want to call it a mainstream movie, but it, yeah. you know, a, a big movie of that caliber. I mean, it's almost the quality of, um, you know, like the Howard the Duck. Some I'm just trying to think of like the best stop motion animation work, like RoboCop Two. It, it is yeah. on that caliber. Well, we had we had all of those guys doing it. I mean, we had the best, the very best um, people working on it, and uh they, the the those sequences weren't very long so we were able to you know manage our budget and to allocate it properly but it was uh i mean we were working with legends in that area the kyoto brothers and other people involved in in 
uh, that type of work. And Dave Daniels, who did our opening, or the Stratacut genius, who did our opening uh, animation sequence. And you know, these were these were the you know the creme de la creme. Um, and uh, our visual effects supervisors were you know they were coming off of doing Dracula for Coppola, and and we had four individual physical effects uh, animatronic and prosthetic teams working on the movie um the, the four arguably the four biggest in town would look it looked like an army camp because they <laughs> all had all of their own tent stations and it was really really fun um you know for us we was like we were very um we were like kids in a candy store to be able to have that those tools at our disposal uh but we really did get to work with with some of the some of the best yeah i can't even imagine i mean it's it's almost like you would never see a movie like that made with that kind of budget now. I mean, it just, it's just like a, it's a unique. Um, yeah. The studio is still, someone at the studio is still trying to figure out why, <laughs> <laughs> you know, or whoever lost their job is, is still sitting around with a, you know, a, a bottle of uh, old granddad wondering why they greenlit that allowed so much money to be, I mean, it is essentially a mashup between, you know, mad magazine and, R. Crumb and, you know, radical 60s comics and Sam Raimi. <laughs> uh, and uh, whoever at the studio thought that was a good idea to pour many millions of dollars into, I, I, uh, I toast their uh, either combination of, of bravery and ignorance. But we did, uh, <laughs> we, we did get it done, and I'm very, very happy that we did. I love it. it it's, it's, you, 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 I didn't think of that when, when reading about it, but obviously someone at the studio was probably very upset or got a yelled at or a talking to. It, oh yeah. It, it yeah. reminds me of this the, was... <laughs> there's a Louis CK uh, story he says where he, where after he made Pootie Tang, um, he just remembers getting yelled at like the guy. And it wasn't even like me, like the studio head wasn't even mean to him. He was like, he was like sad mad. He was like, why did you right. do this? Like what? Right, exactly. How could you do yeah. this to me? <laughs> yeah. I think there was, there were probably a lot of sad mad around those. <laughs> But uh, we were we were glad we were not sad or mad. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and and it says on Wikipedia um, that Rupert Murdoch fired the studio head um, that was actually had greenlit your movie. Is that true? Yeah, but he didn't fire the studio head because he greenlit our movie. Yeah, yeah. He, he fired the studio head because it was the era of family values and he felt that this studio chairman was making weird movies. He had he had greenlit. Um, Barton Fink, he had greenlit Naked Lunch, you know, and I think that they were trying to move the studio uh, to, towards more middle of the road family fair, and we were definitely not that. So you were coming off of the tail end of we were Naked Lunch and Barton Fink, exactly. <laughs> That's yeah, awesome. we, were, we were the comedy version <laughs> of those. Yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah. Um. So Brooke Shields is in the movie. How did that happen? People, people wanted to be in the film. It was actually a, a, a very well-liked script in town. We had a lot of actors that were interested in doing it. That's why Randy Quaid got on board. Um, the, the Idiot Box, our show on MTV, was a hit, and so people knew that at the time. Uh, so it was, you know, we had a very good response from the, from the community. It, the, the Idiot Box, um, I remember that name. Was that... Was that kind of um, coming off of like when Liquid Television? It was, was exactly, there? precisely right. Yeah, it was. The, I think it was one of the first live action, if not the first live action show that they did. Interesting. Was, yeah. So, did you? Were, was any any of the people who worked on Liquid Television or had shorts on it involved in 
idiot box? Because there's a lot of live action stuff on Liquid TV. Um, I don't remember. Possibly. I mean, Dave Daniels, who did our opening, did a lot of stuff for MTV, and he did the big time Peter Gabriel video and uh, Screaming Mad George, who did a lot of our effects. I mean, it was a small artistic community, so I'm sure there was crossover. But I can't. I mean, you're going back 25 years. I can't. I just don't. <laughs> I just don't remember. <laughs> well, that era of MTV in particular, though, was like just exploding with creativity. I mean, it was, yeah. It's yeah. kind of, it was like in a weird way is like the, you know, everybody talks about the golden age of MTV being when they played music videos. But for me, it was, it was like the early mid nineties when it was like the state, yeah. liquid TV, you know, Syphil and Ollie, the Tom Green show. I mean, there's really nothing, there's no channel on TV anymore. That's, that has that amount of crazy weird content. I mean, no. maybe adult swim cartoon network. Oh, adult swim. Yeah. yeah that's it. That's that's, that's probably the, the only one, yeah. 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 Um, so, what what what's your favorite Evil Dead movie? Or save oh, Evil De Evil Dead Two. Evil Dead Two is the masterpiece. There's no there's no arguing that. I don't think. I was hoping you would say that. Yeah. <laughs> did, you, did you have you caught the um the uh, Ash versus the Evil Dead show? Yeah, yeah, I've seen some of that, and uh, I mean, I love those guys, and we were quite friendly with them. In fact, Sam Raimi and Rob Tabbert have a cameo in Freaked. Um, they had Sam had tried to produce a couple of films with us when we first got to Hollywood, me and uh, Tom and myself. So I don't remember uh, that. They're oh, they have a cameo. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, uh, but we're very big fans, and and are to this day. He's really one of the great the great filmmakers. Yeah, no, for sure. There's a, a is. If I remember correctly, isn't there a cameo of both of them in Spies Like Us as well? I think I think so, yeah. <laughs> and and Tom and I had a cameo in Darkman, but we got cut. <laughs> oh, no way. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> I've actually been meaning to, to put that on uh, again recently. I have, it's been a while yeah. since I've seen it. Yeah. That was like, it's so funny because that nobody, I mean, people remember it and it's kind of a cult favorite now, but it's like, it really was like before any of the other superhero movies. Oh yeah. Besides yeah. Batman, you know, it was yeah. like Darkman and Batman. Yeah. Um, so, so you have an upcoming uh, documentary that uh, got an amazing Kickstarter response. Um, and I've... Part of me is kind of like, you know, should I do crowdsourcing if I want to do a future project? And I'm kind of leaning towards doing it after seeing just how successful the, uh, but I don't want to botch the title. Is it wrong to say who the fuck is Frank Zappa? Well, that, or? Was the, that was the name of our Kickstarter campaign. The movie okay. is, just, is just called Zappa. Oh, okay. It's just called Zappa. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The Kickstarter campaign was called Who the Fuck is Frank Zappa? Because it was all about reintroducing him to people and, and the, the many sides of this very multifaceted person. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm immersed in that at the moment. I'm making this doc on, on Zappa at the moment. I'll be doing that for the next couple of years. Is this something that you've wanted to do for a long time or did the idea yeah. come? Okay. Yeah. It's, it's something I've wanted to do for a long time, but, 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 um, uh, it, the idea of, of doing a Zappa doc, um, and doing that as the next thing was, that was, uh, uh, had come to me from my producer, uh, Glenn Zipper, who I worked with on deep web, who's really great. And, um, and we were looking to do something after deep web that was maybe not quite so bleak. Um, and, uh, but I was still interested in, in, I wanted to do at least one more story around an American iconoclastic American 
pop cultural figure. I really felt that downloaded sort of primarily focuses on Sean Fanning and Deep Web on Ross Ulbricht. And I wanted to, to tell another story about a contentious and, and uh, polarizing American figure and with a political bent. Um, so that, and that's always been my interest in Zappa. I love his music. I'm a huge fan of Zappa's music, but the, you know, I grew up in the seventies and eighties and Zappa to me, uh, was a, just a seminal figure like George Carlin was, who just had, you know, he alerted you to politics and alerted you to, to the importance of voting and alerted you to, to having a right, rights as citizens and, and, uh, and did it in a way that was really, really entertaining and, and clear. And um, that was what my interest in Zappos was. So when Glenn and I were talking about it, I, it seemed like a great idea to do as a, as a doc. I, I have to be honest, I'm not, comp- I'm not too familiar with his musical catalog. But years ago, um, I saw a video of Zappa um, later in his career on Crossfire, on yeah, CNN. Yeah, that's a fantastic, a fantastic clip. Yeah. And I was completely blown away. I mean, not to say that, you know, that musicians and artists can't be extremely eloquent and have incredibly interesting, you know, things to say about politics, but like, it was rare to, it's rare for me to hear a someone in, in a rock star or someone of his caliber talking that way. Um, and he, he cleans the floor with, the, with these two, uh, crossfire guys and um i guess i'm wondering did you find other is there other footage like that out there of him just just like railing into these yes. pundits yes there is there's i mean i have i have i've been given access to his entire vault of of media which a lot of which has never ever been seen before and uh there's a great uh, there's a great amount of material on on him in political arena, which I was very happy to find. So I'm uh, very excited about that. That's awesome. Are you going to go into the um, and correct me if I'm saying this wrong? The Mothers of Invention. Oh yeah, yeah. This is a this is a a you know for lack of a of a less crass way of putting it, this is really a cradle to grave examination of him. Okay. So um, um, this is not just focusing on one corner of his life. Uh, this is really getting into all of it. And I might be completely pulling this out of my ass here, but is it true that the mothers of invention were behind that, um, that sort of uh, making molds of rock stars' penises, like cast, plaster casts? Like no, I mean, they weren't, they weren't behind it. There's, there's some myth mythology that zappa got entangled in it but no it wasn't it didn't come from them okay yeah i've been i've heard that story on and from various people over the years and i'm just wondering if so so somehow they, they there's a myth trying to associate him with that but it's not exactly. yeah. that's funny um so our so you said this uh, zappa documentaries is probably going to take a couple years yeah. are you already tabling uh uh, future projects like either documentaries or or other types of films after this. Um, yeah, I mean, there's some stuff I can't talk about, and then I'm I'm constantly writing, so I'm working on a couple of, of hour long TV projects. But uh, but I um, uh, I'm going to be primarily focused on Zappa. Yeah, it's just it's a, it can be it can get administrative at some points. So we have so much media to go through. I'll have plenty of downtime and. I will usually fill that by working on something that's that's got a you know some other component to it. And uh, I'm gonna ask the most annoying question 
last, because um, you're probably asked about this every time you're interviewed, but uh, is there any possibility of a Bill and Ted Excellent Adventure Part 3? Or I guess it wouldn't be called Excellent Adventure, since the second one was Bogus Journey. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's possible it's being worked on. I don't have any other news to offer at the moment. It's just, it's rumbling along. We've been working on it for a while, so hopefully we'll get it made soon. Are you, are you behind the screenplay of that? Or? Um, the, well, it was written by Chris Matheson and Ed Solomon, who wrote the last two, but, but Keanu and, and Chris and Ed and myself, uh, we all put it together. The, the idea of doing a third and, and what the story would be and all of that. But, but Keanu and I didn't write it. It was written by Chris and Ed. Awesome. Yeah. Well, yeah, I was just, uh, I just caught it on television uh, last week and I forgot that Les Claypool and Primus were in it. Yep. Yeah. And it was like before, I, it was like early in their career too. It was like yeah. Jerry the Race Car Driver era. Yep. Yeah, 90, 91, 92. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, yeah um, they're great guys. Yeah, and of, of course George Carlin, um, great great uh, character in that in that movie. Um, well, it was great talking to you, Alex. Um, we had a lot more we could have talked about, but um, I don't want to keep you on the phone here forever. But um, is there anything you'd like to leave our listeners with? Um, is, is there any way that we can contribute to Zappa now? Is the Kickstarter closed or? Um, yeah, we are going to be opening as uh, a uh, a backer, a way for people to come on as backers later, which will which will absolutely help us. So if they uh, uh, you know go to um, to our website or to the uh, uh, to my website at alexwinder.com, then then they can find it. Um, but it's uh, it's going to be easy. We're going to make it easy for people to do. Great. Yeah. And uh, where would you prefer people go check out your movies? A website? You can um, give I mean, yeah, you can. Most of my stuff is is anywhere. It's usually it's, you know all easily found on Netflix or or Amazon or you know uh, iTunes. They're all out there. So if you want, you can go to deepwebmovie.com, um, and you can find sort of all the places that we are that way. Uh, might be deepwebthemovie.com. I can never remember these things. So I apologize. <laughs> you can Google it. You can Google yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. I think it's actually deepwebthemovie.com. So you can go there and immediately get yourself to all the different places you can find Deep Web. And download it is on Netflix and uh, downloaded the movie.com. But alexwinter.com will take you to any of these places. It's all there. And do you have physical copies for sale? Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, there's DVDs of, of uh, the DVD release for Deep Web doesn't start for another couple of months. I think it's, it's, that's going to be out. Kino Lorber is doing our, our DVD release in October. Um, but uh, downloaders, absolutely, you can get DVDs on, online on Amazon. Any bonus content on the Oh, yeah, Deep there's Web? tons. There's, oh. And there's tons of bonus content on the Deep Web as well. Tons. Oh, great. Yeah. There's a whole, almost a whole other movie in there about Bitcoin and surveillance and oh, I love it. It's, all kinds of stuff. Yeah, I love I love getting a documentary and finding stuff like that on it. Yeah, yeah. There's a ton of juicy stuff in there. So and uh, and will we ever see a freaked um, Criterion collection or other form of reissue with the complete Blu-ray and everything well, else? Yeah, I think there is a Blu-ray though. I don't think it's great quality. Anchor Bay did a double DVD release a couple of years ago that then went out of print, which is amazing. And if you can hunt that down, that's got like full rehearsals on it, behind the scenes, and oh it's wow, just incredible how the job they did. Um, 
I think it's quite expensive now because it's a, it's a rarity, and I'm trying to get them to re-release it. Yeah, you, that would be amazing if they did. I would definitely <laughs> acquire a copy. I actually my copy's on VHS. Um, oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, awesome. Well, um, yeah, uh, it was great talking to you, Alex. Um, and good luck um, on your future documentary efforts and whatever projects um, you're doing in the future. Great. Thanks, Robbie. And uh, yeah, I have, I'm going to actually have to go. I appreciate it. It was, uh, it was great to chat. Yeah. Well, have a good day, Alex. I'll okay, man. Talk to you Thanks. soon. Thanks.